Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Only Christ knows when we will see uh, the next pope. But uh, it is a fascinating story to looking over um, the history of Catholicism uh, over the last 150 years to see uh, what seems, what it appears to be a really a, a huge plan uh, in God's providence of equipping the church to deal uh, more effectively with the modern age uh, or even the age of so-called post-modernity to create a a community which is more Christocentric, focused on Christ himself, and also a a community which is more uh, able to engage the surrounding culture. My guest is uh, George Weigel, a New York Times bestselling author, of many books. Uh, he's really the uh, definitive biographer of Pope John Paul II. He's written uh, recently two books that are especially important, helping us understand and orient to the present age, The Irony of Modern Catholic History. He also has written The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and the Church and Mission. And uh, that's what we're going to be focusing in on today. And George, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Always good uh, to talk to you. Um, It has been an extraordinary couple of hundred years in the Catholic Church, and it's it's sometimes difficult to get them into focus because um, we've got the aperture too narrow. We're only looking at what's going on right now. Exactly. And it's it's hard to see the the bigger picture, and that's what I hope these two uh, books help us do. Yep, I I find them very helpful. Let's let's do that though. Let's go back uh, to what uh, Leo the Thirteenth was facing when he uh, was elected in 1878. Um, how did how did he assess? We've got some distance on him now. We, we know what he did. How do you assess his pontificate? How what was he trying to accomplish there? Uh, the pontificate of Leo the Thirteenth, which went from 1878 to 1903. Uh, is really an astonishment. This this man was elected at age 68 as an elderly placeholder who would keep the throne warm for maybe a half a dozen years after the 32-year pontificate of Pius IX, um, and then he would give way to a, to a younger man. Uh, in fact, his pontificate lasted 25 years. And in the course of that, he implemented a plan that I believe he thought through in the 20 years before his election as Pope. Uh, Gioacchino Vincenzo Luigi Raffaele Pecci, to give him his full baptismal name, uh, had been a papal diplomat, uh, but he got in trouble with the King of Belgium at a certain point in his career when he was the nuncio in Brussels was brought back to Italy, made the Bishop of Perugia, which was not a big C, um, and spent the next 20 years really thinking through the question of how does the Catholic Church deal with a world in which um, the old regimes are gone, the old political regimes Mm -hmm. are gone or going, in which science is the new model of knowledge, not not philosophy or theology. Mm Um, a world that's becoming much more urbanized, 
uh, a world uh, in which ancient texts are being read in a completely different way, a world in which human relationships are are shifting uh, as they had not done uh, really for a millennium. Uh, so he comes to the papacy in 1878, having thought this whole thing through. And he then implements uh, what I regard as, uh, and have called, the Leonine Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church engaging the modern world in order to convert the modern world, and engaging the modern world with distinctively Catholic tools. Not saying yes to everything in modernity, but not saying no to everything either, trying to find um, points of tangency where the church can provide a more solid foundation for the, the good aspirations of modernity. Mm -hmm. Justice for all, human equality, uh, freedom in the political sphere. Um, these were all pressing problems at the time. And Leo set in motion through Catholic social doctrine and through other facets of his magisterium a new Catholic engagement with this brave new world, or sometimes not so brave new world, that was emerging out of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, we've got a similar challenge today, because what's emerging around us is the post-industrial world. Right. And the question then becomes, how do we live as missionary disciples in that world, which is increasingly a post-Christendom world? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's something that it's taken, I think, a lot of Catholics a while to, to wrap their heads around. Yeah. Uh, the end of Christendom. I, the I end think right. of yeah. biblical religion is kind of the default cultural foundation of the west right yeah i this uh, this i think has happened uh it there are still people uh, you'll find people still claiming they can go about and renew the culture uh on the basis of the the older models but i think increasingly people are seeing that christendom is over we've entered a new apostolic era and I'm just wondering, he his pontificate ends in 1903. In the 80 years leading up to, um, um, or the, the the following, from the beginning of his pontificate up to uh, John the 23rd, what happens um, through Leo to Pius the 12th to set us up for the Second Vatican Council, which is clearly the most significant religious event of the 20th century. Well, a lot happens, obviously. Um, there, there really is a, uh, a, a vigorous and sometimes fierce debate in the Catholic Church over this Leonine Revolution. Okay. Uh, we did not experience that debate um, in its more ferocious forms in the United States because we were still in the institution-building phase. Mm -hmm of Catholicism in, in the United States, but in, in the European Church. And and the, the Church was a European Church uh, for the first half of the 20th century. Half the Catholics in the world 
and in, at some points more than half lived in Europe. That's right. obviously no longer the case. Anyway, there was a, lots of, of um, uh, argument over this. Uh, Leonine proposal to engage modernity in order to convert. And then John the 23rd in 1958 uh, decides to gather up all of that energy and, and focus it through the prism of an ecumenical council so that the church would be renewed for its 21st century and third millennium uh, as an evangelical and missionary enterprise. And really the, the, uh, the pivot here is, is the uh, pontificate of, of Pius XII. Um, people who imagine that Pius XII was this um, conservative, even reactionary figure, that was long a myth on the left, but it's now being revived in some ultra-traditionalist Catholic circles, mm -hmm. uh, don't really reckon with the fact that after the Bible, the second most referenced source in the footnotes to the documents of Vatican II is Pius XII. Interesting. Huh. And specifically, these three great encyclicals on biblical interpretation, on the nature of the Church, and on the reform of the liturgy. Uh, they were uh, the pivot uh, between the Leonine Revolution and, and the Second Vatican Council, in, in, in my judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, so Pius XII, at least in the first, I would say, two-thirds of his pontificate, was, was a, a very creative figure uh, who was, uh, in a kind of John Henry Newman way, developing the Church's self-understanding while rooting that development in the perennial truths of Catholic faith. In John XXIII's opening to the Second Vatican Council, uh, you've pointed out that most people remember that uh, address only for the, the uh, warning uh, not to be um, held hostage by you know, dark reactionary forces. What was his fundamental point in uh, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia. Um, that, that's a remarkable address, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices. You can actually uh, listen to it uh, on YouTube. I think there is, I, I think a couple of years ago, I watched a YouTube video of that. Now, you've got to get your Latin grammar and dictionary out <laughs> because <laughs> it was delivered in Latin, but it's, um, it's really quite something. I mean, here is this man who is in his early 80s at this point, and, uh, and yet he's drawing on his, his intellectual experience as a historian. This is a very important thing to remember about John the Twenty-Third. He was a historian, mm. and his specialty was the reform of the Church after the various Protestant Reformations, particularly in Milan, and especially through the work of St. Charles Borromeo. So, uh, here is a pope whose model, in a sense, is, is the reformist Borromeo. Yeah. And, of course, what Borromeo was about is what John XXIII wanted the Second Vatican Council to be about, namely conversion. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia is, uh, I believe, the first trumpet call summoning the Church to what a pope named after Charles Borromeo, Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, mm-hmm. uh, would call the new evangelization. So if you if you want to find providential coincidences in yes. this, you you've got a few of them, uh, not only in terms of personalities, but their names and their academic specialties, right there. <laughs> George, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest, George Weigel. Our topic, the next pope, the office of Peter and a church in mission. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria Radio. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I'm with George Weigel talking about his uh, most recent book, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and the Church in Mission. And we've been going over the history leading up to the Second Vatican Council, and uh, it, it really is remarkable to watch the church actively engaging uh, the world around it, uh, trying to really think through the challenges of its uh, own generation, one right after another. Uh, this document of the, um, the uh, teaching of Vatican II uh, gave rise to much debate. Is that similar to what happened after the, the great body of Pope Leo XIII's material was released? Was it, there was much debate in the, in the decades following him? Uh, There was, uh, Al, and this is true of virtually all ecumenical councils. Um, The first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, uh, 325 A.D., was uh, called to deal with the heresy known as Arianism. Uh, Jesus is not fully God. He's something less than God. Mm -hmm. Or as Arius put it, there was a time when the sun was not. Um, so uh, Nicaea solves that problem, issues the creed we recite on Sundays. Uh, uh, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, etc. It took about 400 years for that to sink in. Hmm. I mean, there were still Arians hundreds of years after, after Arius had passed from the scene, yeah. and, the nice, and the Council of Nicaea had, had thought it had solved the problem. Um, this happens all the time. The, the Catholic Counter-Reformation uh, that was set in motion by the Council of Trent took a couple of hundred years to sink in. So um, the fact that there has been... Uh, air turbulence uh, in the Church since the Second Vatican Council uh, really ought not to be a surprise. Um, All councils, virtually without exception, are called because of controversy, are conducted in controversy, and are followed by controversy. If you only view the Church through the prism of the relatively stable American Catholicism of, say, 1955, the aperture of your vision is too narrow. Right. 
Right. You're not going to get the whole story. That was that was really an abnormal and, period in our history. Well, the other thing that I keep reminding people who are you know, legitimately concerned about all of this air turbulence is um, uh, this, I think, important fact. There are libraries of books of church history. There is only one divinely inspired book of church history. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> it's the fifth book of the New Testament. And how does the Acts of the Apostles end? It ends with a shipwreck. Yeah. And the shipwreck becomes the occasion for expanding the Christian mission right. into previously uh, unevangelized territory. That's a metaphor for the Christian life between the ascension and the return of the Lord in glory, which we're pondering in this Advent season, uh, as the first two weeks of Advent are really very much um, uh, focused on the coming kingdom mm -hmm. uh, and the end of time. And then, of course, we move into Christmas mode uh, after that. Uh, so if we keep these things in mind, I think, uh, that's no reason not to contest vigorously for what we've come to understand to be the truth. Um, but we can, you know, perhaps relax a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, John the 23rd used to say to people that he would wake up at night and say to himself, uh, who runs the church, Angelo? That was his... <laughs> baptismal name. Angelo uh, Roncalli. You were yes. the Holy Spirit. Right. And he said, okay, the Holy Spirit runs the church. I'm, I'm going to go back to sleep here. Yes. Um, now, that doesn't mean insouciance. Uh, that doesn't mean calling out error for what it is. Uh, that doesn't mean challenging the corruptions in the church that are wicked in themselves and that impede the church's mission. But it does mean to understand, finally, that this is not our church, it's Christ's church. Right, right. You point out three uh, events after the Second Vatican Council that are uh, moments of consolidating the teaching. The first was uh, Pope Paul VI's um, apostolic exhortation uh, on evangelism in the modern world. There was the second event, would have been the um, special session, 1985 special session of the Synod of Bishops uh, that was called by John Paul II. And then you have the Jubilee of the year 2000. All of that uh, meant to, you know, keep the, uh, keep the ship uh, uh, steered in the right direction here. Now, when uh, we've now had, um, we've had three pontificates, or four pontificates subsequent to the Second Vatican Council, if you include Pope Paul VI. And our next pope is likely what not have much direct contact with the Second Vatican Council. I mean, Cardinal Bergoglio was a young man during the council. Uh, the pope that will follow him, he may have been born, but he probably will have no any direct memories of the church before the Second Vatican Council. What will be required of this next bishop of Rome uh, as he has emerged from Christendom, living in new apostolic times? 
Where do we begin the reflections the, on this? Yeah, I well, as I try to explain in this little book, The Next Pope, I think the first thing that the next pope must do is embrace what his predecessors have embraced, namely the new evangelization as the Catholic Church's grand strategy for the 21st century and the third millennium, to recognize that the Church is fundamentally not an institution to be maintained, but a movement to be energized, a movement of converting the world to Christ and incorporating uh, men and women into the body of Christ, which is the Church. Now, the Church has lots of institutional forms, uh, and those are important. But those forms, whether we're talking about parishes or schools or universities or seminaries or religious orders, uh, need to become launch pads for mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not there simply to maintain themselves. They're, simp they're there to be launch pads for mission, and that goes even for, you know, those contemplatives uh, in religious life who have deliberately withdrawn from the world in order to do what? In order to pray for the rest of the Church right. that it might be a more effective instrument of the proclamation of the Gospel. So, all mission, all the time. That's the first thing that, that, that any pope needs to understand. The second thing I think is critical um, is to understand that um, a basic truth about 21st century Catholicism has come into focus in the past several decades. And that truth is that where the faith is embraced in full, and where it is lived as a missionary enterprise, inviting others into the circle of the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Church flourishes. And the Church can survive all of these acids of, of postmodernity that are eating away at the rest of the culture. Mm -hmm. By contrast, where the Church is still stuck in institutional maintenance mode, or even worse, uh, Al, where, where people are still trying to make this failed project that I have called for 20 years now Catholic Light right. uh, mm -hmm. work, uh, the Church is moribund or, or dying or in some instances dead. Uh, and that is why in, in the, the next pope I have extended the Coca-Cola metaphor <laughs> and suggested that Catholic light inevitably leads to Catholic zero. zero. Right. Right. Uh, and, of course, the, the really tragic situation of the Church in Germany and in other parts of Western Europe is the uh, cautionary uh, tale uh, here. This is what we've uh, seen, though, in, in Protestantism, uh, mainline Protestantism, uh, over the 20th century, uh, until by the uh, 1960s into the 70s, they had lost their distinctiveness, uh, and they lost membership. And today, their evangelical Protestantism, again, uh, a form of Protestantism which has a high view of Scripture, a real confidence in divine revelation, they've displaced the older mainline Protestants uh, as 
you know, the Protestantism of the future, Pentecostalism, evangelicalism, fundamentalism, other dynamic Protestant forces out there. And they hold uh, to a much fuller understanding uh, of the faith than your mainline Protestants, which kind of bleached out a lot of the uh, robust uh, teaching of divine revelation. This is, uh, it, it seems to me, an indisputable fact of, of modern religious history. And yet it, it's kind of one of these things that, that some people just feel uncomfortable talking about. Yeah. Uh, I remember during the Synod of 2015, um, when I was working with a group of Anglophone bishops there, and and we wanted to insert in in the final report that um, what was really at issue in this whole argument over the nature of marriage and uh, worthiness to receive Holy Communion was the reality of divine revelation. Yep. Uh, do the Lord's words on the nature of marriage still hold uh, and bind, and do St. Paul's uh, words on worthiness to receive Holy Communion? still uh, bind. And and we, you know, we wanted to insert in there a phrase that, you know, when um, the reality of divine revelation is uh, lost, when a sense of that reality is lost, uh, when, in a sense, we think we know more than the Lord and St. Paul did, mm-hmm. um, uh, the churches, churches, uh, disappear. And, and we made a specific reference to liberal Protestantism. Yep. And that just would not fly. People didn't want to name this for what it was. Yeah. That was thought ecumenically inappropriate. It, yeah. No. Yeah, There's nothing right. hostile or aggressive about it. It's just a description of fact. Yeah, look at the numbers. <laughs> George, hold it there. We'll take a break. Talking with George Weigel, the next Pope, the Office of Peter and the Church in Mission. Last week at AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we wanted to know what you thought are ways that you can measure a parish's success. 31% of you said mass attendance numbers. 26% of you said the number of sacraments completed at your parish. And 21% of you said the number of seminarians or people in religious life that your parish has produced. Thank you to all who filled out the poll. And if you didn't last week, check out our new poll at AveMariaRadio.net. Scroll down on the homepage and click Poll of the Week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, George Weigel. We're taking a look at uh, his reflections uh, contained in the book The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and the Church and Mission. Uh, This is, uh, again, taking a look at the long sweep of the last 150 years of Catholic history. Um, What can the next pope uh, have to keep in mind as he goes about uh, fulfilling the, uh, his role as the successor of St. Peter. And so far, we've taken a look at the importance that the next pope embraced the new evangelization, um, that he also embraced the fullness of the Catholic faith and not uh, minimize uh, the content of divine revelation. What would be your third critical, most critical uh, emphasis for the next pope? Uh, if the next pope is focused on those two big matters you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, 
energizing all of the people of the church, bishops, priests, religious, laity, for the new evangelization, and witnessing in his own preaching and life to his belief in the reality of divine revelation, uh, the reality of God's coming into history to point history back in the right direction, um, then I would say the next thing the next pope needs is to hire a really tough number two to reform the Roman Curia. Okay. <laughs> because I don't think it's likely that a pope can do that on his own. Interesting. I think he's going to have to get someone to be his deputy for reforming and cleansing what my friend Cardinal George Pell recently called the Augean stables wow. of, among other things, Vatican finance. Uh, we're now at a point, Al, where this combination of um, incompetence and corruption in uh, Vatican finance has become a huge impediment to the evangelical mission of the Church. It's not perhaps as mediagenic uh, an impediment to the proclamation of the Gospel as the uh, uh, clerical sexual abuse scandals, mm -hmm. which are huge impediments right. to the proclamation of the Gospel, as well as being grave sins and crimes. But it's a big problem. And uh, since the Pope has a job of public witness to do, and uh, a job of energizing uh, bishops, clergy, religious, and faithful, uh, he can't take on the micro-reform, uh, the micromanagement of his own bureaucracy. He needs to get somebody in there to do that for him, and it needs to be done quickly. Um, Does he have canonical uh, resources to do that? I mean, I'm not sure, sure what that means. You know what I'm saying? Does he hire yeah. the former uh, you know, CEO of uh, Ford or something? <laughs> you know, who does he bring no, in no, to do I, this? <laughs> I, I'm not talking about that. I, I think you know, Pope would be well advised to talk to some management people about, you know, how you, how you get the boxes put together correctly on the flow chart mm -hmm. or the organization chart. But what really counts is the character of the people involved. Yeah. And um, uh, this is a point I emphasize in the next pope. You can move the boxes around on the organization chart all you want, but if you have incompetent or corrupt people filling right. those boxes, you're not going to get anywhere. So uh, I would think the next papal secretary of state ought to be primarily tasked to use a verb form of a noun that I dislike, uh, should be tasked with making this machinery work in a clean and transparent way, and doing it quickly. There's, there's a kind of built-in lethargy in any big organization. The Roman Curie is not a particularly big organization. I mean, it's a couple of thousand people, yeah. of mm -hmm. whom perhaps only 40 have real decision-making, competence, uh, and authority. So it oughtn't to be impossible to, to fix that, but you can't do it in a leisurely fashion. Uh, it has to be done with uh, a sense of urgency. 
you know, this was done actually after the Second Vatican Council. I mean, Paul VI drastically reorganized the Roman Curia in the five years after the Second Vatican Council and did it in five years. Hmm. You can do it if you put your mind to it and if you understand that this is essential in order to clear the ground from which the real work of the Church uh, can go right. uh, can go forward. Wasn't this supposed to be, though, one of the claims of uh, Cardinal Bergoglio when he was elected Pope? He was coming from outside, you know, he was going to be able to, he was going to be the structural reformer. Was that ever a plausible claim? Well, it was certainly the claim that was made for him, that this was a no-nonsense right. guy who would uh, take out a big broom and, and sweep things out. Uh, I think some progress has been made on that. Uh, it's been made on the uh, sexual abuse front. I think some progress has been made on the financial reform front, although there is much more to be done there. But the what hasn't happened is a change in in what I would call the institutional culture uh, of the Vatican. Okay. Uh, curial positions are still understood as um, career rewards, if you will. And that's going to be a problem. Uh, That's going to be a problem. And the failure of the Holy See to understand that nothing is secret in this world anymore, very little is, And that, for example, you cannot run the central organization of the Catholic Church according to, um, how to put this gently, non-Anglo-Saxon, which is to say Italian hate, (laughs) understandings of financial probity uh, without getting into trouble. I mean, this is a huge problem. Um, uh, Italy remains uh, a country where the rule of law is understood rather more elastically mm. than it is in the Anglosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's the Anglosphere rules that govern international finance, um, which is why the, the Vatican has had to undertake the reforms that Pope Francis has has implemented about uh, budgeting and auditing, but there's a whole lot more to be done in order to bring this operation into uh, a condition where people have trust in it. How do do they use? Do they rely upon the uh, you know the College of Bishops to make recommendations uh, for curial posts? How does that happen? How do they determine? You mentioned that there's a reward, like a career reward here. But how do you go about, you know, deciding you're going to have a new uh, Secretariat of State there? I, I think this needs to be thought through a lot more. I mean, I've I've been dealing with senior officials of the Roman Curia since the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these a lot of these uh, folks are very admirable people, um, with a real dedication to to Christ and the Church. But there is absolutely no reason to think that a man who has spent his life, for example, in the Vatican diplomatic service knows how to manage money. Right, right. Uh, There's just no reason at all uh, to imagine that. 
is why I think uh, there needs to be a whole new reconsideration, a consideration of how to deploy lay people uh, within the Vatican, particularly on the managerial and financial side. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Vatican Bank, the so-called Institute for the Works of Religion, has been reformed because an extremely competent Belgian uh, layman uh, with great experience in the financial world uh, has been in charge of it for the past five years. I see. Uh, that, there is a lesson there that ought to be uh, learned. Okay. Um, so the notion that um, you can simply fill these slots in the organization chart by men who you know, might have been a competent nuncio in Nigeria uh, or India or wherever, and therefore he knows how to you know, run the congregation for the clergy or run the congregation for the causes of saints. This is all uh, old think, and, and we need some real new think in terms of this senior staffing in, in, in the Holy See. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this to undertake this work, this is difficult work, but it's essential. Uh, your understanding is that this is essential, this curial reform is essential if the Church is to continue to grow in this work of the new evangelization. Because right now uh, it's an impediment uh, rather than uh, you know fuel for us. Uh, some parts of it function reasonably well, okay. but... Um... Uh, some parts of the Roman Curia function reasonably well. But um, uh, to rethink this entire operation through the prism of the new evangelization, I think, remains to be done. Now, let's be clear, and I say this in, in the book, The Next Pope, the Roman Curia is not in itself an instrument of evangelization. It's an instrument of governance. Mm-hmm. How you configure that instrument of governance, which exists for one reason, to give effect to the directives of the Pope. How you configure that so that his leadership of the new evangelization is effective, that's the driving question, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. And that requires, on the financial side, transparency and accountability. Because if there isn't transparency and accountability at a certain point, there are not going to be resources. Uh, It's uh, a widely known but largely unpublicized fact that the Peters Pence collection around the world has declined precipitously over the past five years, I think in response to these endless stories of Vatican uh, financial incompetence. And that's before we get to the corruption problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one last point. The the Pope, you, you point out in this book that the, the next Pope, his chief responsibility will be in the appointment of bishops. I mean, is, is, that's the task immediately uh, pressing upon him. Is, are there any suggestions you have for how that can be done more effectively? How can he you know, assess candidates, for instance? I think that has to begin uh, at the local level, Al, um, and and the the suggestion I make in The Next Pope, which I've made in several other books, is that the the consultation needs to be wider, and 
the questions asked of a potential candidate for bishop need to be refined. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of refining the questions, I think the absolute bottom line question is, is this man a radically converted disciple of Jesus Christ who has demonstrated a capacity to be an evangelist? That's the bottom line question. Very good. George, thanks so much. Wonderful talking with you again, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you, Al. George Weigel, the next Pope, the Office of Peter and the Church in Mission. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, This really does educate us as to what the uh, next Pope should be thinking.